Welcome to Big Papa Rob's Podcast Story Rewind, The Missing. I'm Big Papa Rob. Each of my stories are about one of the many missing people out there. I rewind the story of a missing person in hopes that someone will hear this story and can share information to help find this missing person. There is always someone who knows something that can help find this person. Today will be part two of the Heather Teague story. This story will be told by her mother through an interview we had. After talking with Sarah Teague, I decided that the interview in its entirety needed to be heard by you. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, or opinions of Big Papa Rob's podcast story rewind. Information shared on this podcast does not imply endorsement or the opposition to any organization or persons. You will be hearing Sarah Teague discuss her daughter Heather Teague that was abducted from Newburgh Beach in Spotsville, Kentucky, August 26, 1995. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, I'd encourage you to go listen to it first. Now let's rewind this story to its earliest beginnings. Tell me about your daughter. Tell me... uh how she was as a child growing up. I mean, I know that I've seen that she was an honor student when she was in high school and things, but just tell me a little bit about your daughter. Well, if we're going to rewind, and when I was uh, looking, you know, how you, how you do your podcast, it came to me just a few minutes ago that uh, in order to re- rewind this, on August the 25th of 1974, when Heather was 23 months old, I wrote in a journal and this journal came back to me in a very, well, it was three weeks after Heather was taken that um, a box of things that I had left in the attic where we grew up in Seabury uh, was brought back to me. I, I had been searching for Heather that day in the bottom of this journal, a bottom of this box was a journal that I had written to Heather when she was 23 months old An entry dated August the 25th, 1974. I wrote, I am so afraid a big man will someday take my Heather away. Mm. On August the 26th, 1995, when she was 23 years old, that's what they told us had happened. Wow. And that that gave me such strength and hope that day because uh, I remember it was three weeks. The moon was full. And I, I sat out on the, the back, the front porch, going through this, this box of things. Heather's baby teeth were in there. Um, and that day in particular, I had come home and I was so angry because I had told the people that were there, I said, we're playing hardball. I said, something is so wrong. And uh, so I knew that that was a gift from God to give me strength to go on. Now, now, people tell me, you know, well, you spoke that into existence. Well, you know, for me, I know our words are powerful and that they really are powerful. But I also know that 
there's such a bigger picture going on here because I know you've read Heather's writing. She wrote, and I'm a poster child months before she was. And then she wrote about, um, you know, like she was being watched. And so there is a much bigger picture going on here than, than a lot of people realize that I wanted to share that with you. I appreciate that. When Heather was growing up, she was, um, my little sidekick. We, we did, she was really shy. We, um, she was 22 months old when her little sister, uh, Holly was born, but she was, uh, right beside me all the time. I'd sit up at night and, and sew and she would sit right beside me. She could, um, she could write her ABC, print her ABCs when she was two and a half years old. Cause I worked wow. with her, you know, she was, she was everything that I never, never was. She could speak. Well, I, I do now, but speak in front of a crowd she could work a chemistry problem all the way across the board she was absolutely brilliant and she also got this from me i suppose uh, not the brilliance the uh, being able to see things that from people um that would just break your heart you know um and of course i know you've you read uh what she wrote that I'm absolutely living every word she wrote, you know, beside intolerant faces, I stand holding heart and soul in hand, reaching for someone to comprehend, to recognize my struggle, my desperation. And um, I send that to the state police quite often to remind them that there's a bigger picture going on here. I agree. Let's talk about the days leading up to when she was abducted. This is another, this is, this is a big part of this story too, because 10 days prior to this on August the 16th, I came home and she had decorated my home. She had the front door locked. So I would have to go in the back door and she had just, I mean, the whole house was full of weird, really weird, weird stuff. But I know now that she was trying to tell me something. I, I know without a doubt she was. In fact, she told Holly and in, in Haven after after you know that after the cops were called, which I didn't want them to call the cops, but her dad her dad did, as if she you know were going to commit suicide. I I knew that wasn't the case. I knew she was troubled because of some things that was going on in our life. Um, this man that I was seeing, just it, it, it I knew there was there was a lot more you know, going on. I now looking back, knowing what I know now, I wish she'd been able to have confided in me with with everything that was going on. But as as usual, my life was such a mess that um she she didn't. And I saw her on Thursday. This was ten days prior. I saw her on Thursday before this happened on Saturday. And I won't ever forget it because I had just uh enrolled in school. Just had went back to, you know, to enroll. I'd already had my basics down and I enrolled in school. She had gone to the doctor um, on August the 8th and on the way home from um, enrolling in, in classes, I said, God, please just let her be, let Heather be on my couch. Well, I came home and there she was. She was laying on my couch and I got a sheet and covered her up. And then I laid right beside her and watched every, every move she was making, you know, breathing and. And I would close my eyes if she moved. I didn't want her to know I was watching her. 
And I went and bought some grapes and a sausage pizza that I knew she'd pick the sausages off of. And I stood and and watched her do that. And then um, I watched her drive away. And the last thing, the last words that, that we ever spoke, I said, Heather, I said, why are you so angry? And she said, I wish I knew. And I've spent 28 years wishing that I, that I knew. And of course, what what we know now is uh, the the last the last four months has been really amazing in, in what's been revealed. I, I know you don't want to talk about that yet, but. The morning of Heather's disappearance, I've read that she had gone to her boyfriend's house and then he was supposed to meet her at the beach. Um, can you verify that information or tell me in your words what happened that morning? No, she didn't go to her boyfriend's house. She uh, played cards with some of her friends. And the the thing that we know now is that yeah, her boyfriend was supposed to have met her at noon. She had made a call to him at the Red Horse Lounge. I'd, I'd spoken with Nancy Beard, the, the owner of the place, and Heather had uh, made a phone call. I really think Chris Bilo was there then. I don't know. Uh, according to Nancy Beard, some somebody was like watching her or or whatever. And um, and then even the eyewitness, he in part of his story, the reason he claimed that he waited so long is he thought her boyfriend. He thought it was her boyfriend playing a joke, and we'll get into that later yeah. too. But um, yeah, she she had gone to the beach to wait for her boyfriend, Robin Lewis. And of course he was into drugs. And so that kind of ties in when, when Tim Walthall says he thought it was her boyfriend playing a joke. Uh, he, he didn't, he didn't come uh, to meet her. And of course he showed up on the beach and, and did the polygraph. He did the, uh, he's a little bitty guy, little, little, little bitty man. He, he wasn't the one that, uh, that took her. In last week's episode, I played the 911 call that was recorded and released in 2016. Tell us your version and what you know about the 911 call. Well, from what from what we know now, and it came out in the August 30th issue of the Gleaner that there was not an official 911 call. He did not call for help. And the um on the August 30th issue of the Gleaner, it states plainly the witness claims he called 911, but there is no record of any such call. And of course, now that I have the FBI files, I've, I've got it noted. He actually called, uh, and of course, we had to fight. You know, it took us 20 years before we heard that call. Mm-hmm. And it took us, um, let's see, in 2007, we went to court to get the call. I mean, th- this this whole time, what we, what I've been trying to do is give the state police information that Marty Deal was not the man that took Heather. I mean, I've got five statements from family and friends, three jail records. I've got letters, a letter from his mother. I, I have well, the the poster. Do you want me to show you that poster? Sure. I believe this is the one you had on your interview on WEHT-TV. Well, here it is. Yes. I don't know how much you can see. Uh, it's coming through really well. Okay. And that's the picture of this his driver's Marty license. This is Marty Hill's 94 driver's license. Okay. That's the sketch of the face. And as you can see, it's absolutely identical down to an underbite and a shadow. Yep. This is how Marty Deal looked 
July the 15th of 95, a few weeks before Heather was taken. So th this is the sketch that I have taken years and years and years, standing there with tears in my eyes saying, can't you see this? Can't you yeah. see this? No, no, no. We, we don't. We, we, we think he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail there. Now that you've heard the audio that I just heard July the 29th, you know that they knew on day four that Marty Deal was not the man. And I did find in, uh, I can't remember which month, but I did find in the newspaper that they even mentioned that Marty had fuzzed hair in newspaper articles. Well, that, it, But yes. there was never a shot of that picture of him in any of the articles. It's always, almost always has been the Evansville police mugshot, which I'm assuming you can correct me if I'm wrong. From the February uh, incident where he was arrested, right, and and that that is what they cleverly, and this is why I just wrote to um, Chip yesterday and to Lieutenant Pryor. Um, KSP cleverly put that mugshot up because it didn't look a thing like the it it didn't look it. That's not what they used. It took me eighteen months. And let me tell you how that happened. I had the newspaper articles laid out on my table, and this is just how God works. It was in the very back page in a little small picture of and 18 months later. And there it was that I said, that's that's the that's what they use for the sketch. It's identical, you know. So now I'm, I'm just I'm just totally amazed at how far they have gone to hide what really happened August the 26th of 1995 on Newburgh Beach, you know. Something happened because when we got the phone call, it was Henderson Police Department. Now, Henderson Police Department is where James Hendricks worked as a police officer. And we know for a fact that he met her the night before. Now, you know how complicated this is. And, and it took me until February the 18th of 2009 uh, when the FBI was already taken off the case. The the agent that had worked with me with our family for two and a half years brought James Hendricks to my home. And I've got the whole transcript. Of course, I recorded it. You know, I had recorders in every room mm -hmm. and I've got the transcript printed out. And um, he says what he came came there for was to clear up a rumor that he had seen Heather three weeks prior. Well, now that I've got the FBI files and the state police files, uh, it's documented that he said he had seen her on uh, August the 23rd. And of course, we know it was the night before too. So to me, that established an ongoing relationship with Heather and James Hendricks. Well, we and I know there was uh, allegations around when he left the FBI of uh, sexual misconduct in his office, from what I've read. Well, so, when he came to me, he was he was head of uh, pornography in Bluegrass, Arkansas. He moved on up the road to uh, Washington, D.C., where he was also head of pornography. And now, of course, I don't even know if he has a job anymore. But, last I read, it looked like he either quit before charges were formally made against him in the FBI office. Right. But what what's so important is... In January of 08, I think it was January the 31st, actually, of 08, um, Chip and I turned in the tape conversations that I had recorded with Tim Walthall. 
you know, where he said the back of Marty's head was blown away and there wasn't even an exit wound. I mean, I've got him on uh, uh, recording saying, uh, you know, that SOB was laying on a slab in the morgue and blood was everywhere and I, I didn't want to turn him over. And he chopped his hair off with scissors and they all knew. Now I know on day four that Marty Deal was not the man that that took Heather. Based on the FBI file that you shared with me, it appears that Tim waited 45 minutes before he actually made the call to 911, which I don't understand anybody waiting 45 minutes when you see something like that happen. When did you get actually contacted by the police? I think it was about two, two o'clock in the afternoon. Holly and I were just talking about this the other day. Um, it was the Henderson police department that called and, and they were in such a panic. They said, do you know where Heather is? Do you know where Heather is? Hang on a minute. Let me call you right back. Then they called back. They called back two or three times saying, uh, do you know where, where Heather is? And then finally they said, well, she left her car abandoned at Newburgh Beach. Of course, they already knew at that time that she was she had been allegedly dragged into the woods. You know, now that hardly anything this eyewitness has said has been true. And even the Kentucky State Police took up for him, you know, saying, well, he claims um, people are saying that he waited and he didn't. Well, he did. Now that I've got the state police files and interview after interview with Walthall on paper, he says he and his wife are eating lunch at noon, and then he waits until 1.15 p.m. to call straight through to Indiana State Police. What was he doing for an hour and 15 minutes? Yep. If it was 12.30, what was he doing for 45 minutes? Now, I'm assuming when you got the call, you went to... Newburgh Beach area. Uh, yes, we, we, I had never heard of Newburgh Beach, and Holly and I took off there. Of course, see, looking back, uh, by the time we got there, it was Kentucky State Police's case. We just put together years later that it was the Henderson Police Department who had called in such a panic. And, and of course, it was 2008, I think, before we ever heard of James Hendricks at all. So... You know, looking back, it, it was Henderson Police Department that was in such a panic. And by the time we got there, there were yellow police, you know, taped off. And, and uh, of course, I've said this a thousand times, but you don't ever forget that empty lounge chair. Yeah. The side of that empty lounge chair. And, um, you know, David Osborne, the lieutenant, pulled out Heather's bathing suit top and asked, was was it hers? And, of course, I said it was. And then uh, I didn't know years later that Tim Walthaw was right there watching us. I didn't officially meet him until November the 22nd of 95. I went to his home and I remember looking at that telescope and it, it looked like it was a huge thing. And I remember asking him, is that a video camera under there? Because it looked like it had a camera underneath the telescope thing. It wasn't just a telescope. And he called me into the kitchen. Now, even at this time, November the 22nd of 95, even even if by, by then, people were already coming to me saying, Marty Deal was bald. Marty Deal, Marty Deal wasn't even on the beach that day. I had a, a man who owned East End Pawn Shop, Don Parker. Um, I went to his home and he said, Miss Tig, Marty was behind East End, behind my shop working on a lawnmower at one o'clock. And then, of course, now I have the state police's files. He was actually feeding goats with his son. At, at around one o'clock, but he did leave with Mike Shelton at three o'clock in the afternoon. And 
in 98, Mike Shelton was overheard saying that Heather was accidentally run over. During my research, I came across an article about a Michelle Morgan that saw a red Chevette on the road going to Reed, Kentucky, uh, where a shaggy-haired guy was fighting with a woman. Uh, Is there anything to that story? Yes. Okay. The red Chevette was tied to Robin Lewis, her boyfriend at the time's best friend. Uh, He was in jail at the time, not Robin. uh, His name is Trapper John Mooney. He was... Uh, that's who the car belonged to. And in 2016, I got information from a lady who had actually come forward the, the week after Marty Deal was dead, telling the state police that Mike Shelton had come to her home Sunday morning, white as a sheet, sweating, needing her husband to pull his truck out of the bottoms. Mm-hmm. And guess what he was driving? The, the red Chevette. The oh, red the Chevette. Chevette. So when, when this lady gave this information to the police, it would have been uh, maybe September the 7th, a week after Marty Marty uh, ended up dead. Uh, the lieutenant, whoever it was, said, uh, well, thank you for coming in. Uh, we'll, we'll contact you if we need anything. Didn't take down her name, her number, or anything. So mm-hmm. 2016, she comes forward and lets me know about Mike Shelton coming to her home, and she goes to the police station and uh, another lady went with her. The meeting was recorded. And I'm pretty sure it's on the audio uh, that, that I have, too, audios that I have. But she she tells the state police that she had, you know, she said Marty Deal was bald as a baby's ass. Uh, you know, Mike, she used to babysit for Mike Shelton and Marty Deal. So she knew him well. And she told him that he had driven the Red Chevette to her home needing help. And I tried every, I mean, for years I tried my best to get the the Shelton property searched. Uh, Mike, he he's dead now, but he did go to. He was in jail in 2012, I think it was. Uh, he had had a wreck that killed two people. He was. I talked to his attorney, Elizabeth Vaughn, and begged her. You know, blame it on Marty. Everybody else has that. This whole thing has been blamed on Marty. Just ask Mike what Marty did with her. What you know, anything. Just just tell me where Heather is. And he refused to talk. Now he's, mm. he's named in the search warrant also, but, and, and I have uh, questions that were supposed to have been taken to the grand jury to ask him questions, but it never happened. So for some reason, this Shelton character, the brother-in-law was never, um, never questioned. I read in the 340 page FBI report that's out on the FBI's website, the vault that they found a shoe print at the wooded area and just wanted to know if you'd heard, did they compare that shoe size to Marvin Deal's shoe size and what you may know about that? No. No, what, what happened was uh, I, I actually have pictures of of inside the, the Deal trailer when the, the, you know, when the detectives were in there wearing no gloves, picking up items. You know, the gun, and I'll have to send that to you. This is very interesting. The gun that was used was uh, on the bathroom sink. And the the report that I just reread um, a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, um, they turned the electricity off, which th- that's a part of this other other audio that that I, I really want to explain in depth. But um, there was a thump under under un- heard under the trailer. The lights kept being flashed on and off. Uh, he was already agitated, you know, because he was being blamed for the entire day. And I, I think he may have helped Mike Shelton after the fact, but 
I know for a fact he wasn't on the beach. He wasn't the man Walthall described. And uh, there was two shots heard. I haven't sent you that file yet. There were two shots heard and an argument. Mm. So I, I I don't, and I have another another report, which the names are redacted, but the only person it could be would be Ernie Green, the uncle, um, stating that um, his death was suspicious, a su- suspicious suicide. I, I don't think for one minute he committed suicide. Yeah, that was something across my mind when I read the information. Did they happen to swab his hand for gunpowder residue? I don't really know if they had that technology back then. Do you know anything? No gunpowder residue test was even done. I have it in the in the coroner's report. There were no, but uh, Detective Atherton told me right after this happened, he, he showed me on his hand and forefinger where there were powder burns. But that's another thing that's that's not true because I have their own records and no, there, there wasn't any gunpowder residue test done. When did you do the reenactment on the Newburgh Beach? Four-year anniversary, mm. the fourth year that I did reenactment. Um, I stood in Tim Walthall's front yard. He wouldn't let me come in the house, and I used the telescope strength point twenty five that he said he he had used. And you can't see the dirt road from uh, from there, and you can see. Uh, I, I was able to see, you know, pretty plainly. Somebody standing there. Would you have been able, with your view from it, would you have been able to give the description that he gave from that distance? In fifteen to twenty seconds, um, I don't. I don't think there's any way anybody could have given those distinct facial features. Of course, you know, like I said, now we know that had Marty Deal's Bronco not been filmed, Marty Deal's ninety-four driver's license wouldn't have been used on the sketch. Um, that's that. That's the thing. And if you listen really closely to that call, which, you know, like I say, it's it wasn't a call for help at all. But when he did finally talk to the state police, if you listen really closely, of course, you know, you can tell he's not panicked at all. But other than that, it appears he says uh, her belongings are right right here. I think he was already on the Kentucky side when he talked to the Kentucky state police. In fact, he claims he radioed Trooper Klein back to the abduction site and um i mean his his whole story i i want him subpoenaed and questioned i i keep sending his i'm free with his wife on the facebook and i guess anyway she's she keeps i keep sending her messages just asking you know just just do the right thing you know everything he said is not true but but the state police made out like everything he said was gold except when he picked christopher below from a lineup three different times i he saw that him. as well yes you think they did anything Mm-mm. now did they ever take a statement of his wife because even though she wasn't looking through the telescope no uh he refers back and forth that he'd talked to his wife on what he was seeing you know that's a very good point i've never even thought of that that's a very good point no no sir to my knowledge okay. she was never but i'm telling you when i when i met them on November the 22nd I sat right beside her on the couch and she was flipping pages of something like you know this was barely what six weeks into this so I I didn't hardly have a lick of sense but um she was trying I I think she was trying to show me something Hmm. 
And uh, of course, now that we've got the FBI files back, you know, Heather's last known whereabouts was at three. It, it says 3 p.m. on a public boat ramp. Well, she met James Hendricks at 3 a.m. on that public boat ramp. So mm. there's so many, many things that need to be explained. I agree. I know in my research, they talked about a Glenn Rogers, but he was blonde-headed. But uh, when I dug into the Christopher Below and the Ohio newspaper had some really good detailed stories tying uh, your daughter to him. And then that talked about in 2000 that Bello was back in the Evansville area. He stayed with a half-sister and that she had made statements that he frequently went over to the beach area and wandered around and got quiet and things as well. But they never could get enough to do anything. Well, Melinda, well, Melinda and James Belo, um, her name is Melinda, was Melinda Bass, but that they came to my home. In fact, I just talked to James Belo the other day. See, his mother lived in Reed, right mm. there on the beach, and. This is something that I don't know. remember if they put this in the newspaper or not, but uh, James Below, the dad, and his uh, stepsister, Melinda, told me that, and if you look if you look closely at that at that sketch, the picture mm-hmm. of James Below, he's got tattoos all over him. Yep. So my question was, how did the eyewitness give, give the features of his body, but no tattoos? Well, I found out that the night Marty Deal died, uh, Christopher Bilo went to Georgia and got those tattoos after. Well, that would make sense if you're trying to disguise. That's the only way you could disguise yourself unless you shaved your head. Right. (laughs) Well, Um, I I had talked to um, caseworker Christopher when he was in prison. He was released from prison November the 21st, November the 13th of, of 2021. And I had talked to his caseworker for years and I was telling her, you know, I was I was sending Heather's picture to him and I'd, I'd like to see how he would react. And of course, she said he's a complete sociopath. He wouldn't react at all. But um, the lieutenant that I spoke with right before he was released, he let me know. And, and of course, I didn't know what size shoe Marty or anybody wore until I got the got the files. And that's one of the questions that I kept asking. And um on on the the video of when the state police went in to Marty Deal's trailer, they did show like shoe boxes and it was like uh ten and a half, I think, ten point mm. five. But Christopher Bilo wore a size ten. Wow. His pro his uh, lieutenant let me know that that's what size shoe he had worn. I mean, my personal gut feeling with what I've read about this guy, she was killed. He's responsible. But I know you've got other information from files that lead you to believe maybe she's still alive, correct? He what? That you've got information um, based on some possible phone calls that you believe that your daughter's still alive. Well, I, I don't know that she's not, is right. the thing. If, if if I could ever get information that, that she knew Chris Bilo, if she knew Mike Shelton, if she knew Marty Deal, if there was a connection between Mike, Marty, and, and uh, Mar- you know, Mike, Marty, and Chris, Chris Rubilo, you know, I mean, I've, I've got pictures when the Mike Shelton, I mean, Marty Deal, and Chris Bilo, they were in the third grade together. Mm. And you you know, pool, read, that area, it's all tied together, but yep. I, I still don't have any 
I don't have any confirmation that that they knew Heather or that, that they even, of course, Mike and Marty were brother, you know, that, that Mike was Marty's brother-in-law. But I don't know, you know, I, I don't have proof that, that you know, Christopher Below and Mike Shelton and Marty Deal ever knew one another. And uh, the one newspaper article that I read said that there was ties, and I, I wish I, I didn't write it down, but there was a bar in Kentucky that Deal was known to frequent, uh, Below was known to frequent, and they said that your daughter had made a phone call from. Now that was the Red Horse Lounge that I was okay. talking about. Okay. That was that was the Red Horse Lounge that I had just told you about. She had made a phone call about ten o'clock that morning. And I'm trying to get I just read in the files where uh she had gone into the store right there um before you get to Newburgh Beach. She had gone into the store and the state police had asked the lady for the video surveillance. So I'm in the process right now of trying to file an open record to get I mean I would love to see her. Yes. I would love to have that. And um of course it's not in the records that they ever got the video surveillance as attachment or anything. Um of course that's that's not unusual. The meeting we had in the uh two thousand and eight when uh <laughs> they played a call that Walthall made with a female, which I know now she was an actress. Uh Tim Walthall and a female, um, Tim Walthall is saying that uh, Marty Deal wore a wig and mosquito netting. That call has totally disappeared. I have filed open records after open records. Oh, I do have the paper record of, of, of the day that that call was was played for us. They they even stood, Kentucky State Police stood in front of Judge Shepard claiming that there's only one call. And we I've got I've got records plainly. Tim Walthall called Indiana State Police at 1.15. Then he turns around and calls back the next morning, August the 27th, at 10.40 a.m. And despite phone calls and open records, they denied that they recorded that. It was written on a sticky note. Mm-hmm. It was written on a sticky note that this man had called in about an abduction, and um, they gave him Kentucky State Police's phone number, if you believe that. No. I mean... Back in the day, I was a big scanner buff, and <laughs> Indiana had better systems and stuff than Kentucky did back then. But that recording, because I know you and your lawyer uh, listened to that, and it, uh, what's funny is when I went back looking at newspapers, I didn't see any references to the the netting in any of the newspapers. Oh, no. But other people who's done stories about your daughter always refers to that 911 call. And it's just it's kind of bugged me since I started uh, digging into this. Well, when, when I met Tim Walthall, he called me into the kitchen. And that's what where I was I was headed a while ago to, to tell you about. He called me into the kitchen away from his wife. And uh, by that time, even, even by November the 20, 22nd, when I met the eyewitness, there had already been people telling me, you know, Marty Deal was bald. He had to have his head shaved when he was in Webster County Jail. Um, uh, Clarence Crowley, Doris Crowley, the jailer, had made a comment, which I've, I've not gotten his official statement, uh, that he had to have his hair cut off to be custodian. So by November the 22nd, I had already been asking the state police and, and making all these references, running to them, you know, hey, you know, Marty Deal was bald. Marty Deal was bald. Marty Deal wasn't the one that took Heather. Well, Tim Walthall calls me into the kitchen away from his wife and tells me Marty Deal wore a wig and mosquito netting. 
And I said, where did you come up with that? And he said, Dave, which referred to David Osborne. Hmm. And see what it was, and, and I know you've done your research, Marty Deal was the only suspect in the 94 rape where the MO was broad daylight and the, and the suspect wore a mosquito netting. <laughs> Nothing was ever said about a wig. Of course, Marty Deal was bald, so they had to put the wig as a description, you know, to, to hide that. And um, I'm telling you, on July the 27th, and I know you probably didn't want to get into this right now, but. No, it's fine. I, Go ahead. I had been so frustrated from filing open records and uh, I had gotten uh, an open records uh, back and it popped up 403 forbidden. And I got up from Heather's room from the computer and I walked down the hall. And as I do every day, I just say, God, please let me have her back. And these words came to me so plain. I, I ran and wrote them down and I called my daughter, Holly. An undeniable truth is coming. They can no longer deny and they will have no choice but to tell our family. Two days later, I sat down at, at the computer in Heather's room and pull up the Kentucky State Police audios, went straight to Tracy underscore DUI underscore reviewed, opened it up. There was not one word about Tracy Deal, but everything I had been fighting for for 28 years was there. Bill Polk is telling the state police, first he's saying, don't surround him. Wait till mm -hmm. daylight. Let me go in. And I want the first thing I want to do is ask Marty about Heather. And then he says, Marty doesn't fit that description. Marty is shorter. He's lighter. And he does not have bushy hair and a beard. I started shaking so hard with tears falling down my face. And they have laughed at me, denied every letter, denied every jail record, denied everything. And there it was. Not only did they know that he, did not have dark, bushy hair and a beard on day four. They didn't ask him about Heather, and he was the only one. He knew what had happened that day because he had left with Mike Shelton. He was their only hope in finding Heather, and Heather's name wasn't even mentioned, not by one FBI, not by the special response team, not by a state policeman. And their strategy of going and getting Marty or whatever their strategy was, Bill Polk wanted him alive evidently they didn't because the lights kept being blinked off and on somebody was underneath the trailer a thump was heard they agitated the man and from what i from what i evidence i have i don't think he shot himself at all i think he had information about the pornography ring about the drugs the prostitution and heather had confronted the same judge that had signed off on the search warrant i know now that she had confronted Judge Ivy and Paul Lloyd, the strip club owner, about underage girls and prostitution. So that's that's what happened. Heather disappeared on Tim Walthall's watch because he was watching for her boyfriend to come down to buy drugs. Mike Klein was already on the beach. Kentucky State Police were already there, supposedly pulling a truck out of the mud that got stuck the night before. But at the time Heather was abducted, it started leaking gasoline. And the only reason that they panicked had to have been that Heather disappeared on their watch. Now, whether Tim Walthall is DEA, FBI, ISP, KSP, I don't know. But there is no doubt in my mind that he was watching Heather. And the, the one hope that I have that she could be alive is that she knew she was being watched and she didn't want to testify against these people. She didn't want to bust Robin, whatever. And she may have pulled a trick and got out of here. I don't know. I don't know how that would tie into Mike Shelton at all. But in 2002, 
Holly received a phone call and it was a collect call. You know, back then we didn't mm-hmm. have cell phones. And the girl, it was a collect call from Holly. And that's all Holly heard was the operator say, you have a collect call from Holly. And immediately in the background, after Holly accepted the charges, um, a man's voice was saying something to effect, you've lived a life in hell and paying for your sins. And that just happens to be what I wrote in 1998. Um, let me show you. That's where I got this, <laughs> this little Remembering Heather booklet, I wrote this in 98. And I was trying to to raise money to get a detective, but I ended up giving giving most of them away. But I had written something similar to what um, the man said. And, of course, we reported it to the Kentucky State Police and to the FBI to get this call traced. Well, when I got the FBI file or the state police's files, there it was. 2002, the FBI agent, Glenn Wildy, had contacted the state police to tell them that Heather's social security number was being used. He even makes the makes the point to say, please check with the neighbors. Detective Rasco got a subpoena and found out that a Holly Teague Perkins was living in Newport, Kentucky with a lady named Tammy, Tammy Storch near her, whatever, and they stopped. They didn't remember that Holly had received a phone call the very same year, and we reported it to the state police and the FBI. They... Or this this is what I thought until the other day. And now I'm wondering if when we reported that phone call, if we let them straight to her, because who was posing as Holly Teague Perkins? Holly lived in Madisonville. With That's two what babies. I was getting ready to say, because she didn't live anywhere near that area. He didn't live, live there. Uh-uh. And, um, you know, the, the other thing is I called Glenn Wildy as soon as I got this report, saw this report, I was like, oh, my God, that that's the year the Paul Lloyd, Mike Heron and uh, Eddie Jones, who was Tim Walthall's attorney, were busted. That That's the same year. And that's the same year that Holly got the phone call. So I immediately contacted Glenn Wildy. He was retired and an agent named Elizabeth Hensley contacted me. So for four months we were in contact. And of course, I sent her all kind of stuff. You know, I make her head spin. I questions, you know, Heather's last known whereabouts and this and this. The state police took her off this case. The state police, I got a, I, Elizabeth, for, you know, for like a month went by and she wasn't returning my calls. The next thing I know, I'm getting an email from a lady named Mandy Corrigan. And she says that the Kentucky State Police just took them off the case. That was four months ago. And I've been writing to this lieutenant every single day. Could you please tell me who, who was posing as Holly using Heather Social? Because for you, for the state police to have taken this lady off the case, it makes me wonder if they didn't find her. And, you know, <laughs> there's some reason why they didn't, why they took her off the case. They won't tell me anything. I have begged, pleaded, I mean, written, written. I, I, I wrote to the lieutenant again yesterday and I said, do you not understand by you not telling me anything and by you taking this FBI off this one lead, the only lead we've ever had that Heather could be alive, that this is this is just cruel and heartless for you just not to tell me. You know, I even wrote to Detective Rasco. I tracked him down in Sturgis and called the post office and asked the lady if uh, I, I know she couldn't give me his address. But I said, would you see to it that he gets a letter from me? And she said, yes, ma'am, you write the letter and um, for them to take. Take that lady, the FBI. It's called BICAP, Victims of a Violent Crime. Yep. That's who had contacted the state police in 2002. 
So as of today, they still won't uh, tell me why they took the FBI off the case. And since it did tie into when Holly got that phone call, of course I'm going to wonder, you know? Yes. Of course I'm going to wonder if that was Heather. And now with everything else, they have created a phone call. They put a, a man's driver's license on a composite sketch. How do they expect me to believe that they're, they're telling me the truth about anything? I abs- We absolutely don't know what happened to Heather after she walked down to the beach. You know, when you when you stop and think about it, a man with dark, bushy hair and a beard is one of the most common descriptions that's ever given. You know, yep. and, and that's that's what he described at first. And but it, it took them four days before they did a sketch and only after the film of that Bronco was turned in. So they really didn't have all, all he said was a man with dark, bushy hair and a beard. And actually, uh, in the little audio that, that I just listened to, which is almost inaudible with the first his first interview on the beach with uh, Agent Cooper, I think, KSP, K-U-P-P-E-R. Uh, he he says, uh, well, we got a hot one. Hmm. We, we got a hot one. Uh, and the man that took her was like 200 pounds. And uh, he goes on to explain what he means about a hot one. He said um, she unbuttoned her, took her bathing suit top off. And I'm wondering if that's a drug, if that's a slang for drugs. You know, we got a hot one. Something happened. I'm telling you that they panicked. Because Heather disappeared on his watch. There is no other explanation. The reason for all of this, you know, why why wouldn't they, when I came to them with this evidence years ago, why wouldn't they say, yes, Miss Tig, we, we knew on day four? They can't because yeah. this whole entire investigation has been a charade. I mean, th- there's more made up stuff than than there are real facts. So I, I don't I don't claim that lightly. I, I really no. don't. So I, and you, if, if, let me back up a little bit so in your opinion do you think your daughter's disappearance is not by Bilo or deal or do you think it was a true cover-up to or information she knew or is that just a option well knowing what i know now she met with james Hendricks the night before you know and and the fbi brings him to my home uh, a year after they were already taken off the case, so uh, I, I I don't know. All I know is she. I believe she's the one that called Holly in two thousand two. I believe there's a chance. Of course, the the Mike Shelton having run over Heather. You know that doesn't mean that she was killed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Do you think I, she's I, in hiding on her own, or do you think police or FBI or somebody has got her in hiding? I don't know. You know, I did I send you the, the file of her last known whereabouts at the top right corner? It says WP program. And in 2008, there was a lot of stuff going on in 2008. The FBI lady who was an advocate in 2005, see, the F, you, you know, the FBI came to me in 2005 mm-hmm. to tell me to get an attorney to sue the Kentucky State Police post 16 because the evidence they had taken from the Bronco, which is protocol, and given to state police had been found 10 years later, still sitting in evidence. Mm. And, you know, Heather's bathing suit bottoms were just sent off after 27 years. So I, I don't I don't know when I asked the FBI about the uh, the there was like five files that I, I needed to explain in Heather's last known whereabouts about the one file that says Heather's abduction is strongly linked to drugs, prostitution, public corruption and strip club is in parentheses. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one, the state police were keeping a secret of who the people involved in Heather's murder. Um, so when I asked the FBI after I got their files, Agent Pape in Owensboro, I called him and he said, Miss Tig, he said, it will do you no good to come here. He said, you need to take your concerns to the office of the inspector general in Washington, D.C. I did. Her her files went round and round and Agent Michael McDonald finally uh, talked to me and he said, Miss Tig, this is so strange. He said, Heather's files, you know, the, the documents that I or the concerns that I had sent in went from the DOJ to the FBI inspections, to the FBI investigations, he said they need to go to the Public Corruption Criminal Activity Division. Mm. So I had talked to a man named Sergio Galvan, and it was like just hushed. It was like they wouldn't return my calls anymore. So I don't know. It sure sounds suspicious. Oh, my goodness. No, I know uh, when you reached out to me after I did uh, the Andy story, I was blown away with a lot of the information that you sent me. And then I started digging in and what just drives me nuts. I grew up in the Henderson County area. Now I was, I'd moved away by that point, but that I didn't never hear of your daughter's story before. Really? And yeah, I, I can't, I've, I've had family that still lived in the Henderson area, but I never heard the story. Of course, back then you didn't have internet like we do right. now. So I, the only thing I can chuck it up to is at the time I was living in Nashville because of lack of news, I didn't come across it, but, um, it's just, and the sad thing I seen in an article that you'd made a statement that the only person that's had any charges brought against them has been you. <laughs> yeah. And, they were actually standing outside. See the, the way that happened. I kept writing Tracy after she played the fifth. I kept writing her letters. I would put, I knew she wouldn't open them. So I'd put Heather's picture on the back. One, one year I dropped lavender ribbons all in her yard. And um, she actually came out. um, She came out in her front yard and she looked at me and she said, when I get off probation, she goes like this. She says, pal, Mm. you're a dead woman. Well, I went straight to uh, the state police. I think it was post two then. And they were like, "Uh, well, how, how many times have you threatened her? And I said, absolutely none. I said, I've been writing her letters, asking her who was screaming at eight o'clock that night. And in 2016, the the same lady that came forward to tell me that Mike Shelton had driven the red Chevette to her home on Sunday morning, she went to Tracy Deal. And I've got all this. I can send that to you, too. She says that Tracy was crying. um, And she said that Tracy had said, all I could do was scream. So after... In 2016, after all these years, I knew that Heather wasn't screaming, that it was it was Tracy Deal that was screaming. Now, she's been granted complete immunity in 2006, which I, I find that ironic because in 2005 is when, um, you know, Chris Bilo came into the picture. So for some reason, the state police granted her complete immunity in 2006. But yes, the state police came to my home one day because I had watched the film of the, the video of the Bronco. And it appeared like there was two men coming up or a man coming up to the open driver's side door. And I called the FBI and everything. I said, I don't know what y'all have done. It, I mean, it was awful. I, I had called them and uh, the state police came and I had a letter written to Tracy laying on the table. Letter. Now, they came just because I had I had concerns about the video I had just watched. But uh, they saw the letter that I had written to Tracy. And next thing I know, I'm getting 
I'm getting taken to court for harassment and the state police were waiting outside to testify against me. Wow. Of course, the judge immediately said, had Tracy to read a letter, you know, and Tracy read the letter that I had written. And the judge looked at her and said, you, you, you think that's harassment? And of course, they threw everything out. You know, it wasn't harassment. I never I never threatened her. I just wanted to know who was if if she knew Heather was screaming that night. I don't know any mother that wouldn't do what you did. I couldn't imagine any of my step, even my stepchildren, that if something like that happened, I would take every means possible to find information. And, well, it's, uh, it's like I'm a thorn in their side, you know, that they've been so rude to me. And and uh, I remember one one captain, Robert Schultz, I kept filing open records, you know, and and he said, uh, of course, he's the one that said when I presented the three jail records, all that say bald. He said, oh, I'm sure they meant brown. And then he said, you can file all the open records you want. He said, you're not going to get nothing. And then uh, I read an email that, of course, I saved all the emails. Uh, he was like, uh, you know, you're not going to talk to us like this. You're not going to make accusations and accuse us of this and this. Uh, from now on, this is your point of contact. Well, since this new lieutenant has been on the case over a year now, I've had no point of contact. I've not even heard his voice. And the only only messages he'll relay to me is about the DNA. Wow. Well, it's just, but a you shame. know, if you don't, the, the old saying, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. It's true. I mean, um, I've <laughs> just recently got into podcasting this year and the stories that I've read, the parents or even uh, the sister down in Florida that's trying to find uh, her sister. If there, if you don't stay up on it and just and keep bringing it attention, it seems like they just fall off of it. And I mean, your case is the same way. I mean, I've as I was digging in, almost every year there's been an article in the newspaper where you've pushed and brought attention to it, seen where you were, I don't know if it was president or something of a missing persons group a few years ago as well. And I think what you've been doing all these years is the only way to do it, is to keep questioning, keep bringing it up. Maybe someday we'll get answers. We're at we're at the most serious point in this whole entire investigation, and I use that word very lightly, um, because now they know, as of July the 29th, they know that I know without a doubt that they knew on day four that Marty Deal was not the man that took Heather and that they did not change their strategy as soon as they as soon as Bill Pope told them Marty doesn't fit that description their whole strategy should have changed mm -hmm. their whole strategy should have been finding out what Marty knew about Heather who was driving his Bronco that day he knew and they did not even ask about Heather so that right there lets me know that one did, did they not care at all or something else was more important shutting Marty deal up was more important than finding Heather. It just, it's just not right. And I, I write this often. It's a shame and a disgrace to all that we hold precious, what they've done. But like I say now, since July the 29th, they know that I know. And of course, the newspaper article, you know, John Webb did an ar excellent article on September the 10th about the audio. And then just recently, uh, the, the story was done about the 2008 phone call. Um, yep. I mean, for that call to have totally disappeared and for them to stand up in front of Judge Shepard and say that there was only one call, there were actually four calls. He called Indiana State Police, 
at 1.15 on the 26th. He called at 10.40 again the next morning. There was a 2008 phone call that was played for us, and then the one that we, we were allowed to hear after 20 years. And Judge Shepard looked at them in 2017 when we stood before him. He said, why is this mother having to fight to hear a 911 call? He said, I hear them all day, every day. So Judge Shepard knows um, that something is really wrong here. They've committed perjury and obstruction of justice. And I, I believe we're headed to a criminal area right now because for them to do what they did on day four and to criticize me and mock me and deny every lead that I took to them. How is that not obstruction of justice? I don't know. And I know they stood up in front of Judge Shepard and didn't tell the truth. And I know that's perjury. Yep. So now that that's where we are. So where do you think this is going to go from here? It's I need a civil rights attorney is what I need. In 2005, when the FBI came in to tell me to get an attorney to sue the state police, then there were a lot of things that were just speculations. I have proof in their own files. I have proof now what they've done. I don't know why they've done it. I know what they've done. And the only why could possibly be with everything I know now that Heather disappeared on their watch. And that involves Tim Walthall, the eyewitness. So I, I would like for these four officers who were in the room with us the day that Chip Holly and I were played that call with the wig and mosquito netting. I mean, a female dispatcher, it's totally different from the call that we were played in the totally different, you know, and I didn't send you this, but I have a KSP 41, which shows plainly that the real to real call was kept in Lieutenant Osborne's desk until November the 28th of 95. That means he kept that call in his desk for three months and two days. It was then sent to a man named Doug Crow, who is a creative specialist on August the 17th of 07. He kept it until September the 24th of 07. And we were played that call on August the 27th of 08. So you tell me that 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 is not when that call was created. Wow. I mean, I've got it. I've got it. I've, I've, I've got, and of course I've, I've confronted the state police with all of this. Uh, and I tell them, I'm praying for your hearts every day. And I, I had a vision one, one year or a dream or whatever that seven or eight men were lined up and they had their heads hung down. And the day that Chip and I went to court in, in, in this dream, I saw those big cherry doors and I said, Chip, this is what was in my in my dream. And in, in the dream also, uh, I busted through these doors and Heather was laying on this desk and her hair was all hanging down. And I, I thought then that there would be justice someday. And, you know, it's going to take a lot for these officers to admit what they even heard in 2008. It's going to take a lot. And for me to realize now that they all knew no matter how many different captains, lieutenants, sergeants, detectives. Of course, God sent us one good sergeant, Sergeant Jason Pagan. He's the one that let us hear that call in uh, 2016. But if their hearts aren't touched, I, I don't know what it's going to take to make them tell the truth because for them to keep this a secret for 28 years that Marty Deal was bald and they didn't even question Heather. How are they ever going to? You know, the FBI stood right there in my house and said, uh, all, all Chip has to do, he just got out of law school, bless his heart. All Chip has to do is file the lawsuit. The judge will issue a gag order and say $5 million is what she said. And then she said, uh, 
but you won't ever be able to talk about the state police again. Now, here you've got the FBI telling mm-hmm. me to sue the state police, but I won't be able to talk about the state police again. Well, we're way ahead of 2005 now, because like I said, the speculations that we had have now been confirmed. I've got positive proof in their own files. And it just, you know, I, I know how God revealed that to me that day, that it is an undeniable truth. But to to think back at all these years that I I went to them, I mean, just like Heather said, holding heart and soul in hand. You know, would you just look at this? Marty Deal didn't do it. Marty Deal's head was shaved while he was in jail. And for them to laugh at me, and and one sergeant almost turned upside down looking at that Marty Deal's picture, you know, and oh, I'm, I'm sure he had, well, his hair's pulled back in a ponytail. And they already knew on day four, they knew. Yeah, I tried to do a search, the impossible to find, but to see if there was a mug shot of Marty Deal from when he was arrested. But of course, the internet wasn't around then, so I'm sure none of those old no. well, mug shots. What happened was um, those three jail records state plainly bald. And of course, he was in and out of jail. One one day, it was ironically Heather's birthday, April 25th. But uh, the, uh, of course, I've I've tried to get that too. But I was told that there had been a fire at Webster County Jail, and maybe that's where his mugshot mm-hmm. then was. I don't I don't know. But of course, we know the day he was released from jail, he was totally bald, and he didn't mm-hmm. have a pot belly. His, his he was he, he had muscles. But he was their last chance to find out where Heather was, and they they didn't even mention her name, and that, that is a shame and a disgrace. Now that composite to me is just identical to fellow. It is, and did you know? Did you look him up on Facebook? He is now posing. He's got real short hair, glasses, looks like a preacher, and he's working as a dog groomer. Hmm. And a couple months ago, or maybe last year. Stephanie Sylvie, who used to be an investigative reporter with 14, uh, a lady had called her to tell her that she was dating Chris Bilo and that she had just found out, um, you know, his past and she was wanting to get away from him. She was scared to death because he was wanting her to go out of town with him. Hmm. And I reported this to the state police. But I wonder if she looked anything like your daughter and the other young lady that dark hair. Yes, yeah. she was short with dark hair. Absolutely. Yes. Well, anything else you would like people to know about of this case? Just that undeniable truths have been revealed, and I know Heather's coming home. I don't know if I'm going to see her walk through the door or if I'll find a, a bone or whatever, but I do know without a doubt that something is so off when you've got the eyewitness doing what he's done and the state police doing what they've done. Something is, well, I was told this the other day, and I don't even know if, I should speak it out loud, but I was told that this is going to be one of the biggest political cover-ups in the tri-state area. Mm. And in 2003, my pastor, Allison Goodman, came to me. And see, this was right after the 2002 ordeal. She came to me and she said, when this is all said and done, this will be a wonder to all mankind. And people will be saying, that mother, that mother, stand and declare to God be the glory. There's just a bigger picture going on here. When, when, when Heather can write, and I am a poster child, and 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 I wrote, I, I missed it by one day when she was 23 months old, you know, August the 25th of 1974. You can't explain that except, I guess at the end of end of this, it's going to be one heck of a love story, you know? All I, I know is you deserve answers one way or another, and hopefully 
people who were part of it back then, like their conscience will get the best of them and speak out. Well, unfortunately, when you've got the Kentucky State Police involved in a, in a millionaire with businesses in South America, people are afraid to speak out because they know. I mean, even Tracy and, and, and all the people around that little group, they know that Marty was bald. They knew Marty was being blamed, but they knew it was it was there was more to it because the state police are involved. They know that. That's why they've not come forward. No, it's going to be the Kentucky State Police that's going to end up telling that that I just pray they fall on their face and, and just their hearts just change. That That's all I keep praying. And I, I think it's going to be like dominoes. It's going to take one. Of course, Sergeant Pagan has already come forward, but um, it, it's going to take, it, it'll just take one and they'll all, the, the truth will come out. Well, I hope for your sake that it happens sooner than later because you've gone through many, many years. Well, 28 uh, years has been taken from us, either yeah. way you go about it. And you have two other daughters? Oh, I have I have two other daughters, Holly and Haven, and my son, Nathaniel. Uh, I moved to Manchester from Madisonville to be near my son and uh, watch my grandbabies grow up. I have great grandbabies now. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, well, it's I'm so glad you reached out to me. And this case has just blew my mind. And I'm so proud to be able to tell your daughter's story. And uh, hopefully the right people will see it and have a change of heart. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Thank I'll be so staying much. I'll be staying in contact with you. I know you will. I want to thank Sarah Teague again for letting me help tell Heather's story. Let's discuss Heather's description and pertinent information. On August 26, 1995, Heather Danielle Teague was 23 years old at the time she was abducted. She would be 51 years old today. She was 5 foot 1 inches tall, weighed 90 to 100 pounds, with long, dark brown hair and green eyes. She also had a noticeable curvature of the spine due to scoliosis and flat feet. She had a red, round birthmark on her right buttocks. She was last seen in Spotsville, Kentucky, at the area known as Newburgh Beach along the Ohio River. If you have any information regarding Heather's abduction, contact the Kentucky State Police at 270-826-3312. Case number... One six nine five one three two seven. I want to end this story with a verse that Sarah has quoted many times through the last 28 years. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. Matthew 10. 26. The stories I tell about the missing, I hope arms you with new information about this missing person that might lead to finding them. Additionally, I hope that you will share the information about this person in hopes that by sharing, it may lead to locating this person. As with almost all missing person cases, there is someone out there that knows something. 
please come forward and contact the authorities. Once again, I'm Big Papa Rob, and this was an independent podcast called Story Rewind. Story Rewind, The Missing, is written, produced, and edited by Big Papa Rob. I couldn't do this without the support of my wonderful wife, a.k.a. Big Mama. For a donation to help cover my operating costs, you can buy me a cup of coffee. You can find the link in my show notes or on my social media pages. Your support would be greatly appreciated. I would appreciate a five-star rating if you listen to my podcast through Apple Podcasts. And finally, if you have a story idea, please contact me through my social media. A link to all my social media accounts is listed in the show notes. I would love to hear from you. Today's music was The Shield by Hot Dope from Pixabay. This will be my last podcast for 2023. I'll be back in the first week of January with a whole new episode. I'll see you then and have a great holiday and a happy new year. This was a Big Papa Rob podcast 2023.